Good morning everyone and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor, especially if you're visiting us this morning and it's lovely to have Leslie's friend Margaret with us today. We hope that you'll enjoy the service. Everything you need to follow it is on the printed order of service and on the screen. Thank you Anne. Our call to worship this morning comes from the letter to the church in Rome and I'm using the J.B. Phillips paraphrase, which actually dates back, I think, to about the 1970s when we hadn't invented inclusive language, so I have done the odd tweak along the way <laughs> for that purpose. Let us have no imitation Christian love. Let us have a genuine break with evil and a real devotion to good. Let us have real warm affection for one another as between brothers and sisters, and a willingness to let the other person have the credit. Let us not allow slackness to spoil our work, and let us keep the fires of the Spirit burning as we do our work for God. Base your happiness on your hope in Christ. When trials come, endure them patiently, steadfastly, maintaining the habit of prayer. Give freely to fellow Christians in want, never grudging a meal or a bed to those who need them. It's a really beautiful, awesome morning. I love the, the gold and red and yellow of the trees. So it seems quite appropriate, actually, to be able to sing this hymn this morning. Here in this place, new light is streaming. If you're able to stand as we sing, you're invited to do so. Thank you. 
I thought today, just for a little bit of a change, we have a slightly different format to our prayers of approach. Now, before you start panicking, I'm not going to ask anybody to pray out loud or do anything that might make you feel really uncomfortable. So we're just going to do some things together and I will just gather various points um, with single sentence prayers. And it's all done within an attitude of prayer. So what I'd like to do first is to invite you to turn to those near you, particularly if they're not a member of your own household, because if it's your own household, you probably know what's gone on. But just to share very briefly one or two things that this minute, this week, have brought you joy, happiness, a smile, something that's made you feel good. Just a minute or so with those around you, just share those things. For your many blessings and the things that bring us joy, we thank you, our loving God. Now, the next thing I'm going to invite you to do is completely personal and private. I don't want you to share this with anybody else apart from in your mind and your heart with God. Just if there is one thing that's happened this week, either something you've said or done or that was said to you or done to you or not said or not done that left you feeling a little bit uncomfortable or regretful. I want to have given you a few moments to think about that again. I'll, I'll offer a one-line prayer. For your compassion, forgiveness and endless fresh chances, we thank you, loving God. And then again, just a few moments. Maybe there is something that is weighing heavy on your heart or on your mind, something that's troubling you. It might be personal, it might be something in the news, it might be something at work, at school, at college, whatever. And if there's nothing, that's fine as well. But just a few moments to recognise that and to bring it into God's presence consciously. For your gentle presence, whether or not we are aware of it, and for your spirit's comfort, we thank you, loving God. Loving God, who shares our joys and sorrows, forgives and renews us, and draws us ever deeper into your embrace. Hear us now as we join together in the words Jesus taught his friends, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
I'm going to get you to do some more work now. Being very mean today. I want you to think if you could invite anybody, real or imaginary, living or dead, to a dinner party, who would you invite? And I'll just give you a few moments to think about that on your own, and then I'm going to invite you to share that with those sitting close to you. So. Who would you invite if you could have a dinner party and invite anybody you liked? And when you've had a quick think, just share that with those sitting near you. No wrong answers, whatever it is, whatever answer you come up with is the right one. And when you thought who you're going to invite, you probably just barely got started, but never mind. How are you going to get ready for these people coming into your home? How, how will you get your house ready for, for this? How will you prepare for this dinner? As you think about the evening, what are you going to serve them? How, how will you greet them when they arrive? What food will you serve them? What entertainment will you lay on for them? If any. And then lastly, as the evening comes to a close, how will, how will you finish the evening and, and send people off on their way? Oh, that killed conversation, didn't it? <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for, for sharing that. There's been some laughter, so at least some people have found it entertaining. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to who you might have invited, but that's obviously for you to know and maybe not for me to find out. Um, I once was very privileged. Um, some of you have heard me talk about my friend Lulu. And we were trying to do a surprise for Lulu towards the end of her life. And the only way that we could do this was to find out who it was that she really admired. And her sister said to her, if you were having a fantasy dinner party, who would you invite? And she said, Gandhi, the Proclaimers, Bono, Jesus, and Rev Cat, which is me. <coughs> That was incredibly humbling that uh, I was up there with those people. But that would have been an amazing 
conversation. <laughs> to sit around Lulu's table, eating mince and tatties, because that was Lulu's favourite food, and talking with those people. I have um, a couple of boxes here of after eight minutes. Um, some people may be already working out what the Hillhead connection with these is. There is a Hillhead connection to after eight minutes. There's actually a Hillhead to anything, if you work hard enough at it. <coughs> after eight minutes were originally made, they'd apparently since 1962, so they're as old as I am, possibly a little bit older. They were made by Round Trees, who were a former Quaker company in York. Um, along the way, they got taken over by Nestle, so I did actually have to kind of swallow my pride in order to buy these, because I would never normally buy after eights. Neither of those is the Hillhead connection. The Hillhead connection is actually the box. I'm not going to take this one. I'm not going to tear this one apart. Um, when Douglas first started work, Douglas worked for the company who made the boxes after eight chocolates so there we go a hillhead connection with after eights i'm going to read to you what it says on the back of the box and then i'm going to pass both boxes round um, and i'm going to ask you to if i think there's probably going to be enough for you to take two actually because we're a little bit select this morning one you can eat yourself and the other one here's the challenge i want you to take away with you and give it to somebody else but what it says on the back is this. Since its creation in 1962, After Eight Mint has been the favourite dinner mint for sharing with friends. The carefully crafted recipe of smooth mint fondant, enrobed in a rich dark chocolate and individually enclosed in the little black envelopes is the perfect finishing touch to any meal. The perfect mint for sharing with friends. I think that's a bit hillhead-like as well. Not that we're mints, you understand, but that we like to share <coughs> with friends. So if we can start this box going along this side of the room and this box to go along the other side of the room, that would be fantastic. Jesus liked meals, didn't he? Jesus went to lots of dinners. And, and um, the grown-ups are going to be thinking a little bit around some of that later on. But it seemed to me this was too good an opportunity to miss to sing one of our favourite songs about Jesus. <coughs> Jesus loved life. Jesus loved fun. Jesus loved people. And so um, we're going to sing the song, Who Spoke Words of Wisdom and Life?
The first reading is from 1 Kings chapter 18. After a while, the brook dried up because of the lack of rain. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Now go to the town of Zarephath near Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow who lives there to feed you. So Elijah went to Zarephath and as he came to the gate of the town, he saw a widow gathering firewood. Please bring me a drink of water, he said to her. And as she was going to get it, he called out, And please bring me some bread too. She answered, By the living Lord your God, I swear that I haven't got any bread. All I have is a handful of flour in a bowl and a drop of olive oil in a jar. I came here to gather some firewood to take back home and prepare what little I have for my son and me. That will be our last meal, and then we will starve to death. Don't worry, Elijah said to her. Go ahead and prepare your meal. But first make a small loaf from what you have and bring it to me, and then prepare the rest for you and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The bowl will not run out of flour or the jar run out of oil before the day that I, the Lord, send rain. (coughs) Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, Jesus went to to eat a meal at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and people were watching Jesus closely. A man whose legs and arms were swollen came to Jesus. And Jesus asked the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, does our law allow healing on the Sabbath or not? But they would not say anything. Jesus took the man, healed him and sent him away. Then he said to them, if any one of you had a son or an ox that happened to fall in a well on a Sabbath, would you not pull him out at once on the Sabbath itself? But they were not able to answer him about this. Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places, so he told them the pa- so he told this parable to all of them. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited, and your host, who invited both of you, would have to come and say to you, "Let him have this place." Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. Instead, when you are invited, 
Go and sit in the lowest place, so that your host will come to you and say, Come on up, my friend, to a better place. This will bring you honour in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who makes himself great will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be made great. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbours, for they will invite you back, and in this way you will be paid for what you have done. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they are not able to pay you back. God will repay you on the day <coughs> the good people rise from death. Amen. So we're back on our St Magnus Way pilgrimage after a few weeks' break. And today, the theme is hospitality. If you have a really good memory, you might recall the legend of Magnus, his mother, Thora, and his cousin, Hakon. And if you don't have a good memory or you won't hear when I told you, that doesn't matter. It is a desperately sad story. A story in which the two cousins agree to meet on the island of Egglesey and to make a treaty. And when they get there, Hakon breaks his promise and he orders Magnus to be killed. In fact, because he's not a real coward himself, he gets the cook to do the deed. Meanwhile, back on the Orkney mainland, Magnus's mother, Thora, has been busy preparing a banquet to celebrate the peace treaty. When Hakon arrives without Magnus, she very quickly works out what's happened. But she doesn't cancel the banquet, and she doesn't seek revenge. She invites him in, and she invites him to share the bounty that she's prepared. And only at the end of the meal does she ask for her son's body to be brought home for her to bury It's an incredible story, isn't it? In the face of such appalling behaviour, she would still go ahead and invite this man into her home. How could she behave this way? It's too good to be true. And yet, if you've also got a good memory, you might remember when we thought about forgiveness and the, the example we shared of somebody in the USA who had done just that. In fact, had become literally next-door neighbour to the person who murdered her family member. Thankfully, most of us will never be asked to do anything that extreme. 
or will we, nor will we experience anything so horrendous. But as so often happens when we open up the scriptures, we discover that the theme of hospitality is demanding and probably leaves us more than a little bit uncomfortable. I've certainly been very uncomfortable this week as I've worked with these texts and these ideas. Anyone who's ever invited someone into their home to share a meal, or who's organised a wedding or a party, anyone who's attended a formal dinner has got some idea of just how complicated and fraught a task that can be. It's small wonder that very often, actually, we'll just go out to a restaurant with our friends rather than cook at home. Or maybe we'll just have some sandwiches rather than a sit-down meal, because actually, at least that way, we avoid all the tension around guest lists and table plans and who sits next to who. We know from the Gospels that Jesus was a very popular dinner party guest. Um, most probably all his disciples, or at least some of them, would have gone with him to these, these meals. And as an honoured guest, he would almost certainly have been offered a place near the top of the table which could be slightly embarrassing for somebody who'd come a little bit earlier and thought, actually, I'd quite like to sit up here. Because now, that person will be asked to move right to the bottom. I have a feeling that the scene that Jesus describes in the story he tells in Luke would have been common enough. And I think if we're honest, really honest, it could actually happen today. When you were thinking about your imaginary dinner party, how did you arrange your guests? <coughs> Who did you choose to sit next to? And why was that? Or, in real life, if you were invited to a formal dinner with a celebrity speaker who you really admired, where would you like to be sat? Right at the back? or up near the front. Not comfortable stuff, is it? Well, it's not comfortable for me anyway. If we'd read on a bit further in Luke, Jesus told another parable about a banquet and how the invited guests started to make excuses about why they couldn't come. Oh, I've just got married, or I've just bought a new car, or I've just got a new job. Well, in first century equivalents of those anyway. They'd had a better offer, so they said, no, thank you, it's fine. Hospitality is really risky. It risks the possibility of being rejected. We give out the invitations, and we hope that people will accept. But we accept with that that even right up to the last moment, they will say no. Now, sometimes that's totally justified. Of course it is. Sometimes something really major happens and you have to call off from something. But we all know that sometimes it's an excuse. And we're all very human. Well, I think we are. And if we keep on inviting people and they keep on making excuses, maybe we give up. Maybe we start to feel that actually we're not good enough hosts, because if, you know, if we were a better host, then maybe the people would say yes. 
maybe it becomes too much. We just give up because it's too disappointing, too, too stressful. Hospitality is challenging, it's risky. It's also shaped by culture. The culture in which Jesus lived was one where if you issued an invitation, your expectation was that you would be invited back. If you accepted the invitation to go to somebody's dinner, then you were basically saying, and I will hold a dinner and I will invite you back. And if you couldn't keep up with this expectation, then presumably, though I haven't actually been able to confirm this, the polite thing to do would be to say no. I, I can't keep up with this reciprocity. I can't keep up with this endless dinner parties and inviting people backwards and forwards. So just imagine for a moment that you're invited to a dinner where the person you have always wanted to meet or always wanted to hear speak is going to be present. But honour prevents you attending because you can't return the invitation. Because that's what we're talking about here. Jesus, the invited guest, you might want to go and hear Jesus. This might be the thing you've always dreamed of. But you can't invite him back. So you don't go. It strikes me as very curious and intriguing that Jesus had no home of his own. There was no way he could invite people back. And yet he was a popular dinner party guest. And he was a popular dinner party guest with all kinds of people. He was popular with the powerful people. He was invited to the homes of, of religious leaders and synagogue officials. But he also went to the homes of tax gatherers and sinners. He went to the homes where people wanted to impress. And he went to the homes of those on the margins. And he doesn't seem to have behaved any differently wherever he went. But it's into the context of his time that Jesus speaks. Hospitality has become all about one-upmanship. You invite the guests so that they invite you back, and you don't invite somebody who can't invite you back, because actually it's all about class and status. Do you remember Hyacinth Bouquet? Way back, keeping up appearances. It's all about that. All about being seen by the right people, in the right places, doing the right things, eating the right food. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not what it's about. Jesus redefines hospitality in line with God's values. God's values in which race and status and gender and wealth and celebrity and cooking ability and hosting skills or anything else really don't matter. It's not about keeping up appearances. It's not about social climbing. It isn't even about having your own family round for a nice meal, though that is definitely a good thing, especially in our day and age, when we're often so busy rushing around that just having a chance to sit down around the table with a family is a really good thing. 
Jesus sees hospitality as risky and messy. It's about welcoming people who have nothing to offer. The people whose presence can't or won't enhance your social status. In fact, it might even lower your social status. These are people who wouldn't be able to bring a bottle of orange juice. Never mind invite you back for a full dinner at their place, because they might not have a their place. As we read through the scriptures, we get lots of examples of hospitality that are risky and messy and not about social climbing. Perhaps you can think of the story of Abraham and Sarah at Mamre, who are credited with entertaining angels unawares. Or the Emmaus Road pilgrims who walked with a stranger and said, oh, come and have dinner with us. Just bread, but you know, come and share. Or a small boy who shared his picnic. Or the widow who welcomed Elijah, who we heard part of the story of this morning. One of the things that strikes me about these is these are not carefully planned banquets. They're mostly spontaneous acts of welcome and generosity. Come and share what we have. Now, the story of the widow is not quite like that, because I think Elijah actually imposes on her. And she could quite reasonably have said to him, no. No, actually, I've only got enough to make one last meal for my son and myself. You just go away, prophet of the living God. I don't want you. But she didn't. She took the risk. She denied herself and she denied her son. And yes, her story is one of those where it all comes out nice in the end and life isn't always like that. But if she hadn't taken the risk, if she hadn't said, OK, I will make you a meal, small though it is, the story would have been very different. And so I've been reflecting on these stories quite a lot this week. And I've really struggled with what to say. Do I do the nice pastoral thing? Or do I do the scary, political, prophetic thing? Do I share some nice, feel-good stories? Or do I be more radical and follow a route that takes me into the politics of our nation and what seems to me, anyway, a move away from hospitality, away from openness inclusion, and inclusion, and something which I honestly think is leading to an increase in tension and violence. In the end, I thought maybe I should just try and do the impossible and do a bit of each. So I'm going to tell you two stories. It's Christmas Day, and a church hall has been carefully prepared. The tables are arranged in a huge horseshoe shape, covered in banqueting roll and festooned with festive decorations. Gleaming cutlery is set out and a recording of carols plays gently in the background. In the kitchen, a guider and an overseas missionary home for her Christmas break 
oversee the cooking of a delicious three-course meal. Whilst North American, Scottish and Eastern European folk wait to greet the guests. And soon they come. The woman for whom this is the one place and the one day in the whole year where she finds peace and stillness. The man whose OCD means he has to endlessly wipe his hands for fear of disease or infection. The Oriental postgraduate student and the German exchange student who are unable to return home for the holidays. The Australian tourist who woke up in a hotel only to discover that there is not a restaurant seat to be had in the entire city, but a web search led her to find that a church is hoping, hosting a free Christmas lunch open to anybody. And there they are. The one whose booming voice loves to sing carols. The lonely man who was out photographing churches because he had no one with whom to spend the day and walked through the open door out of curiosity. The volunteer from a charity that supports people trapped in poverty. There's no protocol for seating. And some delightful conversations start as the people sit down. By three o'clock, it's all over. Taxis and volunteers have driven the guests to their homes. The last dishes have been washed, and the helpers carry away carefully wrapped parcels of leftover turkey, trifle, or cranberry sauce. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's tiring. It's hospitality. And our church is right there at the heart of it. That's the nice one. That's the easy one. Now the risky one. A young Asian woman stands up to address the party faithful. She looks around. She takes a moment to see where she is, and then she begins to speak. And first of all, it's about law and order, about tackling crime and recruiting more police officers. And then she speaks these words, which I quote directly. As Home Secretary, at this defining moment in our country's history, I have a particular responsibility when it comes to taking back control. It is to end the free movement of people once and for all. And as I watched my television, my blood ran <coughs> cold. Because this is the polar opposite of hospitality. She goes on to speak of a system, and again I quote, that attracts and welcomes the brightest and the best, one that supports brilliant scientists, the finest academics and leading people in their fields. 
And that sounds good. Except, is that really what we need? What about the seasonal workers who, who pick the daffodils we all enjoy in the spring, or the strawberries in the summer, or the cockle pickers off the uh, Atlantic coast on the north of England? What about the care workers who tenderly wash the bodies of frail elderly people in care homes or hospitals? What about the cleaners, the bus drivers, the taxi drivers, and the other low-paid occupations upon whom we are so dependent, who leave their homelands, often in Europe, but also in other places, to take on the jobs we're too proud to do? And of course, there's a threshold salary, isn't there, for these people who are going to be welcome? which is above that of most nurses and teachers, classroom assistants, the vast majority of ministers. I could go on, I could quote more of that speech, but I suspect all that would happen is every one of us would become increasingly uncomfortable. <coughs> and because I'm not very competent or confident talking about political things, I would probably put my foot in it. The question I've wrestled with all week is how on earth does this sit with the gospel value of hospitality? Isn't this precisely what Jesus wanted to challenge? Do we invite the nice middle-class professionals or do we invite the unimportant people, valuing them? actually for what they offer. Not such a nice story. So maybe, briefly, we should return to ourselves and what Jesus might have to say to us, because that's what you're supposed to do in a sermon, isn't it? You're supposed to kind of ground it at the end. So these are just a few thoughts. There is a risk, I think, that we can make hospitality so big and complicated that we can't do it. We confuse grandeur with generosity, and we feel inadequate because we can't do what they do, or they do, rather than actually delighting in what we can do and who we are. Hospitality is just about opening our hearts and our homes to others with no expectation in return. And yes, people might reject our invitations, and they might do it many times. They might even impose their own expectations upon us. But you know, I honestly think it's really worth it. It's when we take the risk, when we share what we have and who we are with whoever is willing to come and share, that we discover who we really are and glimpse something of the mystery of God. I don't have answers to all the questions. I don't get politics. I know it's complicated. I just know that this particular speech really wound me up. You've probably noticed that. But what I would like you to do for a moment is to go back to your own fantasy dinner party 
and the guests that you imagined. And you can have those people at your dinner party. I'm not asking you to uninvite any of them. But for each one of them, I want you to think who Jesus might have said you should invite. Not necessarily an actual person, though it could be, but perhaps a people group who might not be invited that you could invite. How will you arrange your seating? What food will you serve? And out of that imagining, out of the parable that you have created for yourself, what will you take into the real world? One of the metaphors we use for heaven is of a great banquet. Now, I don't know what that looks like. When I was a child, I always assumed it was a great long banqueting table. And then I kind of learned about King Arthur and the round table, and I came to think, well, perhaps heaven's a round table. Maybe it's lots of little tables. I have no idea. What I do know is there won't be a top table, and there won't be a bottom table, and actually everybody will be welcome. And all the regrets and all the hurts of the past can be forgotten about, and all the tears will be wiped away. It tells us that in the scriptures. And here's the real beautiful thing. God will sit down to eat with us. And we will be at God's banquet. Let's remain seated as we sing.
So now we come with our prayers of intercession, our prayers for others, for the world of which we are a part, for each other and for ourselves. So let's pray. Welcoming God, the image of heaven as a great feast to which all are invited is as challenging as it is beautiful. For it means that we may just have to sit next to people we'd never have chosen. You know, the ones who annoy us because they slurp their soup noisily. Or they hold their cutlery incorrectly. They speak with their mouths full or their elbows invade our personal space. The ones whose voice is great, who talk too much or not enough. And about subjects that really do not interest us. People who smell a bit or, or their clothes are tatty. People who are self-important and superficial, whilst we, of course, are perfectly humble and sincere. Your heaven, then, is, is not a kind of perfect, regal banquet, but a rather messy gathering of real people with real lives. We might prefer not to have to sit down with powerful politicians, especially those whose policies on freedom of movement, immigration, education, healthcare, the European Union, Scottish independence, or whatever it might be, disturb and distress us. But they're on your guest list, so we must pray for them that their own experiences of welcome and opportunity might move them to show the same to others. Whatever our views on Brexit, on independence, we are reminded that national borders and customs barriers count for nothing in your eternal promises. And we ask in the model of the moment that whatever emerges, we will hold fast to the hopeful vision of a fully reconciled humanity, which is what you promise us. We might prefer not to have to sit down with people who are different from us, physically, spiritually, educationally, ideologically. But they're made in your image, just as we are, and are welcome at your table. Help us to delight in diversity, to discover more of the wonder of who you are as we glimpse you in each other and in those we name as the other. Especially, we pray for people who feel marginalised or excluded simply because of who they are and whose voices are often drowned out <coughs> by other, louder voices. Help us to listen carefully to what is said and to what is not said. 
Help us to show to others the respect and dignity we would wish for ourselves. The Baptist Union of Scotland asks us to be intentionally relational, recognising our interconnectedness with those who serve you in other places. And so today we name the congregations in Oban, at Paisley Central, Perth, Peterhead, Pollock and at Peebles. They're all different and we know nothing about them. But you call them to show hospitality to those around them and to welcome all people to show your love. So we ask you to strengthen them in that endeavour. BMS World Mission has a strong heart for those who are on the margins. And especially we pray for their work in Thailand, among women and men trapped by the exploitation of the sex industry as they seek to restore dignity, teach new skills, and enable, enable hope to be born anew, please strengthen them for service. In these days of uncertainty, they also ask us to pray that the all-party parliamentary group on freedom of religious belief will be succeeding, successful in ensuring that religious freedoms around the world continue to be a core aspect of UK foreign policy. And gladly we make that prayer, that all around the world, all people would have the freedom to follow the religion of their choosing. As a welcoming and inclusive community, it's our privilege to pray for one another. We continue to pray for Nancy and her family as they adjust to life after the recent death of Douglas. Please comfort them in their grieving and strengthen them for their own continuing lives. We pray for Steve, who provides us with expert advice on health and safety matters who has recently started a second job alongside his existing one. We pray that you would strengthen him and bless him in all he does. We pray also for Anita, Neil and Bonnie, delighting in their loyalty and cre creativity. And we ask you to bless them as they enjoy family life together. Finally, we take a moment of quiet to pray for ourselves and for the people and places close to our own hearts. <coughs> Welcoming God who has set a table for us all Accept our prayers 
and help us to play our part in living out the answers. For we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that you give us the grace to be servants to each other. And we pray that you give us the confidence and the courage to use these gifts wisely and well in your service. Amen. Our closing hymn reminds us that the kingdom of God is justice and joy. And if you're able to stand, please do so as we sing together.
welcoming God, we have enjoyed being together in your presence. <coughs> so as we go from here to diverse places and various challenges, may we know your peace, your hope and your love today and every day.